Hi, welcome to episode 3 of Make Peter Read. I'm Peter and I have trouble reading on my own, but I love to read aloud. And that's where you come in. Send me your suggestions and I'll read them here. This week I'm actually changing track significantly. In my first two episodes I began A Princess of Mars. This was a story I had read before, and it was a good entry point into helping me get started with a reading podcast. But the objective of this podcast is to help me to read new things. Therefore, as of this week, I'll be switching to the autobiography of Fukuzawa Yukichi, as translated into English by Kiyo Okaeichi and published in 1934. Fukuzawa Yukichi was a seminal figure in modern Japanese history. Born into a samurai family of no special significance in 1835, Fukuzawa grew up in a completely different Japan, a feudal, pre-industrial society characterized by strict traditions and rigid social hierarchies. As a young man with an open mind, Fukuzawa found himself uniquely positioned to ride the tidal wave of changes felt by Japanese society following the forcible opening of Japan to the global community by United States Navy Commodore Matthew Perry's gunboat diplomacy in 1853. Fukuzawa was an avid learner of languages and eventually mastered Chinese, Dutch, and English, compiling one of the first English-Japanese dictionaries for use by Japanese people and served on multiple diplomatic missions to Western countries. His writings on those missions are some of the earliest accounts of Western societies written by Japanese people, and his first impressions and musings on the similarities and differences between Japanese and Western society are extremely illuminating and deeply fascinating. Fukuzawa went on to play an important role in the newly emerging modern Japan, and founded the now prestigious Keio University, which my own father would later attend. Fukuzawa died in 1901. As a note, in this book, Japanese names are written and will be read in the traditional order, with family names preceding personal names. Now with that context established, please enjoy the autobiography of Fukuzawa Yukichi. Chapter 1. Childhood. The family life of a younger brother. I will begin by telling something about my family. My father was a samurai in the service of Okudaira, the daimyo of Nakatsu in the province of Buzen on the island of Kyushu. My mother, called Ojun, as her given name, was the eldest daughter of Hashimoto Hamayamon, another samurai of the same clan. In social order, my father was higher than the common foot soldier. In today's society, his position would probably correspond to Hanninkan, the lowest rank of government officials. It was not much of importance anyway, since he was barely allowed to have a formal audience with the Lord. My father had been made securer of the foundation, motojimeyaku, or in other words, the overseer of the treasury. Consequently, he had to spend much of his time at his Lord's storage office and headquarters in the city of Osaka. Therefore, all of his children were born in Osaka, five in all, first a boy, then three girls, and then myself, the youngest. I was born on the 12th of December, in the fifth year of Tempo era, according to the modern calendar, January 10, 1835, when my father was 43 years old and my mother 31. A year and a half later, in June, my father died. At that time, my brother was only 11, and I was a mere infant, so the only course for our mother to follow was to take her children with her back to her original feudal province of Nakatsu, which she did. What I seem to remember best about Nakatsu is the fact that we children never quite mixed with other children there. Though we had dozens of cousins, and there were flocks of children in the neighborhood, we never seemed to get along with any of them, or play with them as we did among ourselves. 
There was no real reason for this, but having a different Osaka dialect, we children grew self-conscious even in saying yes and no to our neighbors. Then my mother, although she was a native of Nakatsu, had accustomed herself to the life of Osaka, then the most prosperous city in Japan, and so the way she dressed us and arranged our hair made us seem queer in the eyes of these people in a secluded town on the coast of Kyushu. And having nothing else to wear but what we had brought from Osaka, naturally we felt more comfortable to stay at home and play among ourselves. I must mention a very important characteristic of our family. My father was really a scholar, and the scholars of the time, different from those of today, disdained to spend any thought on money, or even to touch it. My father always longed for a secluded, uncontaminated life with his books and the noble philosophy of the ancient sages. Yet he was forced to attend to the most worldly affairs, for as an overseer of a treasury, it was his duty to associate with merchants, and to count money, and to negotiate the contraction of debts for his lord. Sometimes when his lord was in difficulty, my father had to bargain with the rich moneylenders like Kajimaya and Konoike of Osaka. In this work he was unhappy, and so when it came to bringing up his children, he tried, it seems to me, to give them what he thought was an ideal education. For instance, he once sent them to a teacher for calligraphy and general education. The teacher lived in the compound of the lord's storage office, but having some merchant's children among his pupils, he naturally began to train them in numerals. Two times two is four, two times three is six, etc. This today seems a very ordinary thing to teach, but when my father heard this, he took his children away in a fury. It is abominable, he exclaimed, that innocent children should be taught to use numbers, the instrument of merchants. There is no telling what the teacher may do next. I heard of this incident later from my mother, for I was too small at the time to be sent with the others to the teacher. At any rate, one may easily see that he was a very strict father who never compromised on what he felt was just. From the writings he left, I know that he was a disciple of Confucianism to the very heart. Among the great scholars of Chinese philosophy, my father had a particular respect for Ito Tolgai, and was literally living the old saying, when one's heart is true and the mind is just, a broken thatch is no shame. My father's ideas survived him in his family. All of us children lived with few friends to visit us, and having no one to influence us but our mother, who lived only in the memory of her husband, it was as if father himself were living with us. So in Nakatsu, with our strange habits and apparel, we unconsciously formed a group apart, and although we never revealed it in words, we looked upon the neighbors around us as less refined than ourselves. Even our cousins were, we felt, not quite like ourselves. We did not reproach them for any breach of good manners, for we were too few to assert our superiority. We simply held our self-possession deep in our hearts and stood aloof. I still remember that I was always a lively, happy child, fond of talk and romping about. But I was never good at climbing trees, and I never learned to swim. This was perhaps because I did not play with the neighborhood children. Thus we lived apart in the alien place, and had many lonely experiences in ways not usually felt. But our home life was a happy one. Though there was no father to lord it over us, we children never quarreled among ourselves or annoyed our mother. It was not that our mother was strict, or that she took particular pains in teaching us manners, but we naturally grew up to be obedient and thoughtful. It must have come from the memory of the father and the quiet influence of the mother. As an instance of the discipline observed, we never had a musical instrument in our home, nor did we ever think of hearing music, for that was an amusement unworthy of the samurai. 
Likewise, it was natural that it never occurred to us to go and see a play. In the summertime, during a festival, there would sometimes be a series of plays lasting seven days together when the traveling actors set up their temporary stage in Sumiyoshi Temple Yard. Then there would always be a proclamation that the samurai of our clan should not attend the plays or even go beyond the stone wall of the temple. Though the proclamation sounded very strict, it amounted to a mere scrap of words. Many of the less scrupulous samurai would go to the plays with their faces wrapped in towels, wearing only the shorter of the two swords which all samurai wore, thus making themselves appear like common people. These disguised samurai broke over the bamboo fence of the theater, whereas the real common people paid their fees. When the management tried to stop the intruders, they would utter a menacing roar and go striding on to take the best seats. Among the many samurai families of middle and low class, ours was perhaps the only one that did not see the plays. Though all women love the theater, my mother never let herself mention it, and we children never asked a question about it. Sometimes after a warm day we might go out together for a stroll in the cool of the evening. As we walked along we would see the canvas of the temporary theater come into view, but would never speak of the plays that were being staged. Such was our family. As I have mentioned, my father was unhappy in the worldly duties which it was his lot to perform. He might have broken with his master and gone to seek his fortune elsewhere, but he did not entertain such an idea. Apparently he submitted to the distasteful position and buried his discontent in his heart. Perhaps it was because he knew that it was impossible to overcome the rigid custom of the time. There is a story that makes me sorry for him. When I was born, I was found to be a rather thin, but big-boned child, and the midwife said that I would grow up to be a fine man if only I was fed plenty of milk. This made my father very glad. This is a good child, he often said to my mother. When he gets to be ten or eleven years old, if all goes well, I will send him to a monastery and make a priest of him. Later, after the loss of my father, my mother once told me that she never understood why he wanted me to be a priest. But, she said, if your father were still living, you would be a priest of some temple by now. Years later, when I came to understand better, I realized that all this wish of my father's was a result of the feudal system of the time with the rigid law of inheritance. Sons of high officials following their father in office. Sons of foot soldiers always becoming foot soldiers and those of the families in between having the same lot for centuries without change. For my father, there had been no hope of rising in society, whatever effort he might make. But when he looked around, he saw that for me there was one possible road to advancement, the priesthood. A fishmonger's son had been known to have become a Buddhist abbot. I believe I am not far from the truth in thinking that this may have been my father's reason for directing me to the priesthood. I am filled with heart-pity, when I think that he should have lived the forty-five years of his life in the fetters of the feudal system, and died before any of his desires had been fulfilled. He had determined to put his son in a monastery that he might have some wider field of thought and life which had been denied to himself. When I think of this, I realize his inward suffering, and his unfathomable love, and I am often moved to tears. For, all in all, the feudal system was my father's greatest enemy. But despite my father's wish, I did not become a priest. Nor did I do any studying at home, as he would have encouraged me to, for there was nobody to force me to do so. My brother, who had taken my father's place in the family, was yet a young man. My mother was obliged to do all the housework, feeding and clothing the five of us children by herself, 
as she did not have enough means to hire a servant. Naturally, our education was neglected in the busy rush of daily work. It was not unusual for the small sons of the Nakatsu clan to study Chinese classics such as Lun Yu, the sayings of Confucius, and Da Shui, a book of ethics, but it was never much encouraged. I suppose there is no child in the world naturally fond of study, so perhaps I was not the only one to take advantage of a parent's leniency and to profess a dislike of books. However, when I was 14 or 15 years old, I found that many of the boys of my age were studying these classics, and I became ashamed of myself and willingly started to school. It was embarrassing in the beginning, for I was a young man of 15 beginning with the oral reading of Mencius, while other boys of my age were discussing the books of Chinese philosophy, Xieqing, and Xieqing. The system followed there was that the advanced students gave lessons in oral reading to the new students early in the morning, and then later they all had an open discussion of the subject. Perhaps I was somewhat talented in literature, for I could discuss a book with some older student who had taught me the reading of it earlier in the morning, and I was always upsetting his argument. This fellow knew the words well, but he was slow to take in the ideas they expressed, so it was an easy matter for me to hold a debate with him. I changed from two or three different schools, but I studied most under the care of a master named Shiraishi. Under his guidance I made rapid progress, and in four or five years I had no difficulty in studying a good part of the Chinese classics. Shiraishi-sensei placed special emphasis on the classics, and so we gave much of our time to the studies of Lun Yu, Mencius, and all the other books of ancient sages. Especially as our master was fond of Shi Qing and Shu Qing, we often listened to his lectures on these books. Also, Meng Chu, Shi Shuo, Zhou Chuan, Chan Kuo Tse, Lao Tzu, and Chuang Tzu. As for historical books, we had Shi Qi, Qian Ho Han Shu, Qin Shu, Wu Tai Shi, Yuan Ming Shi Lue, etc. Of all the books I read at Shiraishi's school, Zhou Chuan was my favorite. While most of the students gave it up after reading three or four volumes out of the fifteen, I read all, eleven times over, and memorized the most interesting passages. Thus in the course of time I became Zenza, or Submaster in Chinese classics. Shiraishi-sensei belonged to the school of Kamei. In fact, he worshipped that master of sound philosophy, and rather despised the delicately literary and did not encourage the writing of lyric poetry among us. There was, at that time, a certain poet and satirist, Hirose Tansol. Of him our old master would disparagingly say that he could not write a line of perfect Chinese and was a mere trifling poet in Japanese. Likewise, of another literary contemporary, Rai Sanyol, he would say, if his writings are called literature, then somebody's scribblings might be literature too. A man may stammer, but his meaning will be understood. Following our master, we disciples soon learned to think little of those he denounced. My late father was like Shiraishi, for although he was in Osaka and Sanyo lived in Kyoto, not far away, they never exchanged courtesies. My father, however, did become a friend of another scholar, Noda Tekiho. I do not know what kind of man this Tekiho was, but if my father made him a friend while avoiding Sanyo, this Tekiho must have been a scholar of true worth. At any rate, as Kamei-sensei had created his own theory as to the interpretation of Chinese philosophy, his disciples were often at odds with scholars of other groups. Besides these studies at school, I was very clever at doing little things with my hands, and I loved to try inventing and devising things. When something fell in the well, I contrived some means to fish it out. When the lock of a drawer failed to open, I bent a nail in many ways, and poking into the mechanism, somehow opened it. These were my proud moments, 
I was good at pasting new paper on the inner doors of the house, which are called shoji. Every so often when the old lining of the shoji turned gray with dust, it had to be taken off and new white paper pasted on the frame. So I used to do all this work for our own house, and sometimes one of our relatives hired me out to help him do the work in his house. I was proud to do all I was asked, for I was quick and clever in every little work. As I grew older, I began to do a greater variety of things, such as mending the wooden clogs and sandals. I mended them for both my brothers and sisters, and fixing broken doors and leaks in the roof. As we were poor, it was necessary that one member of the family should look to keeping the house in repair. I bought a large needle and changed the covering of the tatami, the thick mats that are used to cover the floors. Also, I knew how to split bamboo and put hoops around buckets and tubs. Later, I began to earn money by making wooden clogs and fitting out swords. I never attempted to polish the blade, but I could lacquer the sheath, wind the cords around the handle, and somehow put on the metal fittings. I still have a short sword which I fitted out myself, though of course it is of poor workmanship as I look at it now. I learned these arts from various acquaintances among the samurai who were practicing them to help their living. For any work in metals, it is very necessary to have a good file. I had a difficult time in making one for myself. I knew how to make an ordinary file from a steel bar, after a fashion. But the fine file for sharpening saws was beyond my art. Years later, when I first came to Edo, I was surprised at the sight of a boy, an apprentice to a blacksmith, making a saw file. I still remember the place. It was at Tamachi on the right-hand side of the street as I entered the city. The boy had the file on a piece of leather on an anvil and was chiseling away at very fine notches as if he never realized there was any wonder in it. I stopped and watched him, thinking what a great city of industry this must be where even a youngster could make a saw file such as I myself had never dreamed of making. This was the first shock I received on coming to the city. Thus, ever since my childhood, besides my love of books, I have been accustomed to working with simple homely things. And even yet, in my old age, I find myself handling planes and chisels, and making and mending things. But these are only the little common things, devoid of art. I possess little of what people call good taste. I care nothing for the kind of clothes I wear, or the kind of house I live in. I do not even see why it is better to wear one garment over the other in a certain way. Still less do I understand why fashions and dress should change every year. In this commonplace, utilitarian life of mine... If I might claim any one thing that I do know unusually well, it would be the art of swords, with their proper equipment in all parts and structure. I believe this taste came from my early work in sword fitting, though my work was never more than that of an amateur. I was always unconcerned with the ways of society, and it was my inborn nature to act always in my own way. Since all the samurai of small means kept no servants, they were obliged to go out and do their own shopping. But according to the convention among the warrior class, they were ashamed of being seen handling money. Therefore, it was customary for samurai to wrap their faces with small hand towels and go out after dark whenever they had an errand to do. I hated having a towel on my face and have never worn one. I even used to go out on errands in broad daylight, swinging a wine bottle in one hand with two swords on my side as becomes a man of samurai rank. This is my own money, I would say to myself. I did not steal it. What is wrong with buying things with my own money? Thus, I believe, it was with a boyish pride and conceit that I made light of the mock gentility of my neighbors. When guests were expected at our house, I often cooked burdocks and radishes to help my mother in the kitchen. But as soon as the guests arrived, I disappeared into a closet. 
I did not want to see them lazily eating and drinking and talking nonsense. I often wished they would hurry and go away, but of course they never did. So I would take my supper before they appeared, drink my wine, for I was fond of it, and then I would crawl into some little closet in which we kept our bedding, for that was the only refuge I had in the small house. I would stay there, lying on the pile of bedding until the guests were all gone, which was often very late. Then I would crawl out again and spread my bed in the usual corner of the room. My brother had many friends who used to come in the evening and discuss the questions of the day. Sometimes I listened to them, but being yet a youngster, I was never allowed to join in. Frequently the subject of the conversation turned to Rekko of Mito and Shungaku-sama of Echizen, two scholars whom all the students of the nation honored. As Rekko of Mito was a close relation of the shogun, respect for him was very deep. In mentioning him in conversation, people did not speak his name directly. Scholars in scholarly language would call him Mito no Roko, the venerable aged lord of Mito, while the unlearned would call him Mito no Goinkyo-sama, the honorable retired lord of Mito, always careful to use the honorific title Sama. Inspired by all this, I too believed that he was the greatest man in the world. Then there was Egawa Tarozaemon, also much respected as a scholar and a great man. Again, as he was Hatamoto, or an immediate retainer of the shogun, everybody referred to him, even in private conversation, by the honorific title of Sama, as Egawa-sama. Once, I heard my brother mention to his friend that this great man, Egawa Tarozaemon, was a hero of modern times, for his self-control was such that he was able to live through the winters in summer clothing. Hmm, I can do that myself, I thought as I listened. And after that, without disclosing my intention to anybody, I began to sleep on the floor rolled up in only one quilt. My mother was much worried when she learned this. What nonsense is this, she said. You will take cold. But I went on and endured the cold until spring. I was fifteen or sixteen years old then, eager to try everything that others did, and happily I had a strong constitution. As I have suggested, Chinese classics were then the basis of all learning. Naturally, my brother was a thorough scholar in Chinese, but he was peculiar in one respect. He studied mathematics according to the system of Hoashi Bandi, a scholar of Bungo province. This teacher, though he was a noted scholar in Chinese, had a new theory that the gun and the counting board were to be considered important instruments for the samurai, and that it was wrong to leave the counting board, or rather, finances, entirely to lower officials, and the gun to the foot soldiers. This theory had spread to Nakatsu, and my brother was one of several younger men who had studied mathematics and attained some ability in it. In this he differed from the usual scholars. Otherwise, he was a strict follower of the Chinese, believing to the core in their moral teachings. One day I had an amusing conversation with him. Yukichi, what do you intend to be in the future? he asked me. Well, sir, I would like to be the richest man in Japan, I answered, and spend all the money I want to. He made a wry face and gave me a piece of his mind, so I asked him in return, What do you want to be? He answered gravely in the stilted Chinese phrasing, I will be dutiful to my parents, faithful to my brethren, and loyal to my master until death. Hmm, I exclaimed, and there the conversation ended, and that was my brother. He sometimes had queer ideas. I was born the eldest son, he once said to me, and I am now the head of the family. 
but I should like, if it were possible, to become an adopted son of some very difficult family with the most headstrong parents. I would prove that an adopted son can live with any parents and be good and obedient. His opinion was that all trouble arising between parents and an adopted son came from the willfulness of the son. But I had an entirely opposite opinion. I should hate to be an adopted son, I said. Why should I serve people as parents who are in truth not parents at all? So, our ideas differed. When this conversation took place, I was 16 or 17 years old. My mother was an unusual woman who thought individually on certain matters. In religion, she did not seem to have a belief like that of other old women of the time. Her family belonged to the Shin sect of Buddhism, yet she would never go to hear a sermon as was expected of everyone in that sect. Nor would she worship Amida Buddha, because, as she said, I feel rather strange and shy in worshipping before Amida-sama. I can't bring myself to do so. Yet she never missed paying respects to the graves of her husband and her ancestors on a certain day in each month or taking a bag full of rice to the temple. The bag which my mother used for so many years is still preserved in my family. She never worshipped Buddha, but she had many friends among the priests, not only the priest of the temple to which her family belonged, but also novices from different parts of the country who were studying at my school. Mother loved to treat these novices with tasty dishes whenever they came to visit me, and I have no reason to think that she was against religion in any way. My mother was fond of doing kindnesses to all people, especially of making friends among the classes beneath her own, the merchants and farmers. She had no objection even to admitting beggars, or even the outcast Eta, the slaughterers of cattle and dealers in leather who were a separate class by themselves, much despised by people of that time. My mother never showed any sign of slighting them, and her way of speaking to them was very respectful. Here is an instance of my mother's charity, which I always remember both with affection and distaste. There was a half-witted beggar woman in Nakatsu who called herself Chie, but nobody knew who gave her that name. She was a miserable creature, ragged, tattered, and dirty, with long, filthy hair swarming with vermin. Nobody wanted to come near her. Many a time, on a fine day, my mother would call the beggar woman in and make her sit on the grass in the yard. Then she would tie her own sleeves behind her back to keep them safely out of the way, and bare her arms. Thus prepared, she would begin to catch the little creatures in the beggar woman's hair. I was always called on to help, and was ordered to stand by with a stone to crush the little creatures that the ministering fingers would pull from the beggar's hair. After catching fifty or a hundred, or as many as could be found, my mother and I would brush our clothes and wash our hands with rice bran. Then she would give the woman a bowl of rice for her patience in sitting still. I suppose this was a pleasure to my mother, but how I hated it. Even now it makes me uncomfortable to think of it. One day, when I was twelve or thirteen years old, I ran through the room in one of my mischievous moments and stepped on some papers which my brother was arranging on the floor. Suddenly, he broke out in disgust. Stop, you dunce! Then he began to speak solemnly. Do you not see what is written here, he said? Is this not Okudaira Taizen no Tayu, your lord's name? I did not know it, I hastily apologized. I am sorry. You say you did not know, he replied indignantly. But if you have eyes, you should see. What do you think of trampling your lord's name underfoot? The sacred code of lord and vassal is... Here my brother was beginning to recite the samurai rules of duty. There was nothing for me to do but bow my head to the floor and plead. I was very careless. Please forgive me. But in my heart there was no apology. 
All the time I was thinking, why scold about it? Did I step on my lord's head? What is wrong with stepping on a piece of paper with his name on it? Then I went on, reasoning in my childish mind that if it was so wicked to step on a man's name, it would be very much more wicked to step on a god's name, and I determined to test the truth. So I stole one of the charms, the thin paper slips bearing sacred names which are kept in many households for avoiding bad luck, and I deliberately trampled on it when nobody was looking. But no heavenly vengeance came. Very well, I thought to myself. I will go a step further and try it in the worst place. So I took it to the chozuba, the privy, and put it in the filth. This time I was a little afraid, thinking that I was going a little too far in the experiment. But nothing happened. It is just as I thought, I said to myself. What right did my brother have to scold me? I felt that I had discovered one of the great truths of the world, but this I could not tell anybody, not even my mother or sisters. When I grew older by a few years, I became more reckless and decided that all the talk about divine punishment which old men use in scolding children was a lie. Then I conceived the idea of finding out what the god of Inadi really was. There was an Inadi shrine in the corner of my uncle's garden, as in many other households. I opened the shrine and found only a stone there. I threw it away and put in another stone which I picked up on the road. Then I went on to explore the Inari shrine of our neighbor, Shimomura. Here the token of the god was a wooden tablet. I threw it away too and waited for what might happen. When the season of the Inari festival came, many people gathered to put up flags, beat drums, and make offerings of the sacred rice wine. During all the round of festival services, I was chuckling to myself. There they are, worshipping my stones, the fools. Thus, from childhood, I have never had much fear of gods or Buddha. Nor have I ever had any faith in augury and magic, or in the fox and badger which people say have power to deceive men. I was a happy child, and my mind was never clouded by unreasonable fears. Once, a queer woman came to our town from Osaka. She was about thirty years old, a daughter of Dempojia Matsuemon, a worker at the storage office where my father used to be. This woman came to our house and claimed that she knew the magic of Inari. She said that if any person would hold a gohei, a ceremonial wand, while she prayed, the spirit of Inari would descend upon the person and the gohei would begin to move. I moved forward. I think I was fifteen or sixteen then, and said, Let me hold it. It would be fun to see what it feels like to have Inari-sama inside me. The woman looked at me scrutinizingly and shook her head. No, she said, this young man will not do. You said any person would do, I insisted. Why can't you try the magic on me? I had a good time teasing her. The thing that made me most unhappy in Nakatsu was the obligation of rank and position. Not only on official occasions, but in private intercourse and even among children, the distinctions between high and low were clearly defined. Children of lower samurai families like ours were obliged to use a respectful manner of address in speaking to the children of high samurai families, while these children invariably used an arrogant form of address to us. Then what fun was there in playing together? In school I was the best student, and no children made light of me there. But once out of the schoolroom those children would give themselves airs as superior to me. Yet I was sure I was no inferior, not even in physical power. In all this I could not free myself from discontent, though I was yet a child. Among men of official rank, the distinction was still greater. Once my brother sent a letter to the Chancellor of the Lord and addressed the outside cover in the scholarly style. 
Samakashitsuji, using the classical Chinese term. The letter came back with an order to change the form of address to Sama o Toritsugishu, a much more respectful mode of address, thus forcing even more humility on my brother. Seeing this, I cried to myself, How foolish it is to stay here and submit to this arrogance. And I was determined then to run away from this narrow, cooped up Nakatsu. Among our cousins, there were some good scholars and those who took much interest in the ways of society. All of them, being samurai of low rank, would often complain of the despotic atmosphere of the clan. But I was always stopping them, for by then I had grown to understand somewhat of the world and society. Never complain of Nakatsu as long as you stay here, I would say. Complaining does not improve things. Better go away or stay here and stop complaining. One day, while reading a Chinese book, I came upon these ancient words Never show joy or anger in the face. These words brought a thrill of relief, as if I had learned a new philosophy of life. Since then, I have always remembered these golden words and have trained myself to receive both applause and disparagement politely, but never to allow myself to be moved by either. As a result, I have never been truly angry in my life, nor have my hands ever touched a person in anger, nor has a man touched me in a quarrel. Ever since my youth to this old age, only once I had a bitter experience. Some twenty years ago, long after I had become a man and had come to have a school of my own, one of my students was hopelessly dissipated, and though I gave him assistance in many ways, even in the means of living, he would not give up his dissolute life. One night, I do not know where he had been or what he had been doing, he came back drunk and gay. I ordered him to sit up all night and reflect upon his actions. But when I returned a few minutes later, he was snoring. Shameless wretch, I cried, catching him by the arm and shaking him. He was soon awake, but I gave him a good shaking which I thought he well deserved. But later, as I thought of it, I was sorry, for I had allowed my hands to touch a man in rage, and my remorse was like that of a priest who breaks the commandments. I have never forgotten that feeling. Notwithstanding this priestly fastidiousness, I was fond of talking and debating more so than the average, and in everything I did I liked to be quick and active, and I was never behind anyone in doing anything. But there was one thing then that I never indulged in. That was the boyish custom of arguing in which one of the two would become excited and go on arguing until he won by out-talking the other. I was willing to discuss a subject, but when my opponent grew heated, I would evade his point, thinking to myself, why does this fool love to make so much noise? Outwardly, I was living peacefully enough, but always in my heart I was praying for an opportunity to get away, and I was willing to go anywhere and to go through any hardship if only I could leave this uncomfortable Nakatsu. Happily, a chance sent me to Nagasaki. Chapter 2 I set out to learn Dutch in Nagasaki. I counted myself 21 years old. The native manner of counting a man's age adds one year at the new year instead of at his birthday. My exact age was 19 years and 3 months, when in February of the first year of Ansei, 1854, I set out to Nagasaki. At that time, there was not a single one in our town who could understand the strange letters written sideways, nor was there even a man who had looked at the forms of those letters, though in larger cities there had been students of the Dutch language for a hundred years or longer. But it was a few months after the coming of Commodore Perry, and the news of the appearance of the American fleet in Edo had already made its impression on every remote town in Japan. 
At the same time, the problem of national defense and the new art of warfare, the modern gunnery, had become the foremost interest of all the samurai. Now all those who wanted to study gunnery had to do so under the instruction of the Dutch, who were the only Europeans, after the 17th century, permitted to have intercourse with Japan. One day my brother told me that anyone who wanted to learn Western gunnery must study Gensho. What is Gensho? I asked, for it was all unknown to me. Gensho means books published in Holland, with letters printed sideways, he replied. There are some translations in Japanese, but if one wishes to study this Western science seriously, he must do so in the original language. Are you willing to learn the Dutch language? As I had had no trouble in learning Chinese, I had some confidence in myself, so I answered, I will study Dutch or any other language. If other people can learn it, I think I can too. And so, the next time my brother had business in Nagasaki, I went with him, and there began my first study of the ABCs. Nowadays, the European letters are seen everywhere in the country. They are even used on the labels of beer bottles, and no one sees any strangeness in them. But to me, those odd-looking letters were very strange. It took me a full three days to learn the 26 letters of the alphabet. But I must leave the account of this study, and tell something of how I lived in Nagasaki. The true reason why I went there was nothing more than to get away from Nakatsu. And so I would have been glad to study a foreign language, or the military art, or anything else if only it gave me a chance to go away. Therefore it was nothing of the homesick feeling usual to a youngster leaving home that possessed me. I still remember how I swore to myself that like a bullet shot out of the gun's muzzle, I would never come back. That was a happy day for me. I turned at the end of the town's street, spat on the ground, and walked quickly away. In Nagasaki I first lived as sort of a dependent in Koeji, a Buddhist temple in the street called Okeamachi. I was taken to this temple by one Okudaira Iki, a son of the chancellor of our feudal lord, who was a relative of the priest. Okudaira Iki was also boarding in this temple as a guest, studying the Dutch language and gunnery. A little later his teacher in gunnery, Yamamoto Monojiro, took me in as an eating guest to his house. This was the beginning of my activity in this world. Though I was supposed to be a kind of a free boarder, I did all sorts of work in the household. The master had poor eyesight, and I used to read to him the essays of contemporary scholars on the problems of the age. I also gave lessons to his son, a youth of 18 or 19, not very intelligent, but as the son of a scholar, he had to be taught to read the Chinese classics. Yamamoto was a poor man, but holding a certain office with the Edo government, he lived extravagantly with many friends and followers and a considerable debt had accumulated. Because of this, I took on another duty. This was to write letters to negotiate the postponement of his debts and to contract new debts. Whenever the general man of work was ill, and that was pretty often, I took his place. I would draw water from the well, sweep the house in the mornings, and wash the master's back in his bath. His wife was fond of animals. She kept many cats and lapdogs in the house, and bigger dogs in the yard. I took care of them also. I had taken in my hands every kind of work from the highest to the lowest. By and by, my master began to think a good deal of me, for he had found me a youth full of energy, yet very well behaved. Finally, he asked me to become his adopted son. However, I had to tell him that I had already been adopted by my uncle Nakamura. I might say here that, ever since childhood, before I could know anything about it, I had been promised to my uncle's family as his heir in the future. When Yamamoto learned my situation, he said, if that is the case, you should consider all the more coming into my family. I will do all in my power to look after your future. He used to express his wish at many different times. 
Like all the specialists on gunnery of the time, Yamamoto had a collection of books as his own patent property. All of them handwritten copies, and part of his income came from charges on lending out these books, or from selling their handwritten copies. However, as he had poor eyesight, I was given the charge of all this work. Nagasaki at that time was the only part of Japan in contact with the outside world through the Dutch compound. So naturally, students of gunnery and foreign affairs came to Nagasaki from many different clans for first-hand information. If they wanted to visit the Dutch compound, which was on the island of Dejima, the only spot in the whole country where the Dutch were allowed to reside, Yamamoto could arrange the visit. Again, if any wanted instruction on casting cannon, Yamamoto could furnish diagrams and necessary directions. Such was his business, but really I was the one who did the work. I was a mere amateur. I had never seen a gun in operation, but it was easy to draw diagrams and to write the directions, and if more information was wanted, I could go and give lectures as if I had been specializing in the subject all my life. Now it was rather strange to see that Okudaira Iki and I had exchanged places. He had placed me in Yamamoto's household as a dependent, but now I had come to occupy something of a position in the field of gunnery while Iki was still the same student. And here was the cause of the break between us. Then there was another cause. My chief concern was, after all, the Dutch language. I often went to the interpreter's house, and sometimes to the house of the special physicians who practiced medicine after the Dutch instruction. Dutch medicine, we called it. And little by little, after fifty or a hundred days, I came to understand something of the Dutch language. Iki, on the other hand, though he had been studying the language for a long time, had never really learned it, as a spoiled son of a high official never does. He became envious of my progress, and though he was not really a man with deep malice, he was the son of an aristocrat, self-willed and narrow. He must have been planning to make me his lifelong follower after helping me in my education. Now that he had found me flying ahead of him beyond his reach, he decided that I should be sent home to Nakatsu. He was nearly ten years my senior, but he was like a child in his way of thinking, which was a great misfortune to me. Iki's father, Yohei, was the old chancellor in our clan. We called him with much respect, Goinkyo-sama, as he was then in retirement. It seems that Iki had urged his father to send an outrageous order to my family for my return. My brother had just left for Osaka to assume our father's official post, occupied by others, since my father's death twenty years before, and my mother was living alone at home, as all my sisters had married. The only relative living near was a cousin of ours, Fujimoto Gentai, a doctor and a scholar who had true sympathy for my mother. One day Iki's father, the retired chancellor, called our cousin into his presence, and ordered him to write a letter. Yukichi's presence in Nagasaki hampers my son's career, he told Fujimoto. You must write him that his mother is ill and needs him at home. Such a direct order from the chancellor could not be evaded. Fujimoto, after letting my mother know about the scheme, wrote me the letter which formally requested my return because of my mother's illness. But on a separate sheet, he explained the transaction and enjoined me to have no anxiety about my mother's health. I grew very indignant, for what baser act could there be than to command a subordinate to tell a lie? I wanted to break out at first and challenge Iki in an argument to force him to confess his scheme. But my better judgment told me that it was useless to quarrel with the son of a chancellor. I should only be the loser in the end, and it would be wiser to look out for my own safety. So I went to Iki with a show of surprise and anxiety. I am very much troubled, I said. A letter has just come from home with news that my mother is ill. She has always been a very healthy woman but it seems that one can never tell. I am quite worried because I am so far away from home. I pleaded the poor homesick boy. Iki expressed his surprise and sympathy. You must be anxious to get home at once, he said. 
It will be best for you to start now. But then after your mother's recovery, I will see that you may return here to go on with your work. He put on the most sympathetic tone, and perhaps was inwardly enjoying the smooth effect of his scheme. I will take your advice, I said. And if you have any message you would like to send your honored father, or if you have anything to send him, I will gladly take it with me. When I called the next morning, Iki gave me a letter for his father and another to Ohashirokusuke, a cousin of my mother's, saying that the latter would be helpful in securing the permit to return to Nagasaki. Then, as if he meant that I should read this message, he handed me the letter without sealing it. I made the politest of leave-takings and returned to my lodging, where I opened the unsealed letter. The note read, Because of his mother's illness, I am sending Yukichi home at his own urgent request. But when his mother recovers, you were to arrange for his return to Nagasaki, as he is still in the course of his studies, and it is proper that he should continue them. This idiot's game. I grew more indignant than ever. I called him fool and monkey and cursed him with all the vocabulary I was capable of. Then I took leave of the Yamamoto family. Even to them I could not tell the truth. For if the truth were made public and the disgrace put on Iki, I should be the one to suffer most. I simply said that my mother was ill and took my leave, back to Nakatsu. I was determined to make my way to Edo, for I believed that was the city where the young and ambitious should go to make his start. By good fortune there was a student from Edo named Okabe Dochoku among my new acquaintances. As I believed he was a man with a broad mind and a trustful friend, which he had proved to be, I revealed to him all that had passed. I am running away, I said finally. I am too angry to go meekly home, but I don't know anybody in Edo. You told me that your father was a practicing physician there. Couldn't he take me in as an eating guest? I don't know much about medicine, and I am not going to study it, but I am sure I can roll pills and do such simple work. Please send me to your father. Go to him by all means, he exclaimed, angry with sympathy for me. I will write a letter for you, and you will have no difficulty in finding him, for he has his house in Nihonbashi at Edo. Don't worry, but go right to him. He wrote the letter, and I thanked him heartily. If the truth were found out, I continued, I'd be sent to Nakatsu anyhow, so please keep it a secret until I get a safe distance away. It will take me perhaps ten or fifteen days to get as far as Osaka. About that time, will you tell Iki for me that Nakamura Yukichi, my name then, has gone to Edo? Give him that medicine for his little joke. I met a merchant from Nakatsu by the name of Kurokaneya Sobe returning to our town, and I set out with him as if to that destination. The first day we walked 70, about 18 miles, and reached Isahaya in the evening under a fine March sky, with a clear moon. Here I broke my purpose to the surprised companion. Well, Kurokaneya, I have decided I don't want to go home now. Take my box with you, and take it to my home, will you? I don't need more than one or two changes of clothing. Now I am going to Shimonoseki for a boat to Osaka, and then to Edo. The honest merchant looked thunderstruck. What madness is this, he cried. A young master like you to think of traveling so far alone. Oh, don't be excited. What's the matter with a man's moving from Nagasaki to Edo? Everybody wants to go to Edo whenever there is a chance. But what will your mother say? What shall I tell her? Just give her my love. I'm not going to die or anything. If you tell her Yukichi has gone to Edo, she'll understand. So I gave him my box and the letters which Iki had given me to take back to Nakatsu. I'm going first to Shimonoseki, I went on, to take the boat for Osaka, but I don't know the place. Can you tell me a good hotel there? Since he saw he could not dissuade me, honest Kurokaneya tried no further. You might go to Sembaya Suguemon's hotel. I know the proprietor very well. 
The real reason why I inquired about a hotel was that since I had so little money, even after selling a Dutch dictionary, I had left for my expenses only two boo and two or three shoe. I thought Kurokaneya's name and recommendation might be of some future help to me. I took the local sailing ferry and crossed the Sea of Amaksa to Saga. The fare was 580 mon. The bay was very calm and we reached the opposite harbour the next morning comfortably. From Saga I went on to Kokura in entire ignorance of the road and the towns through which I had to pass. I simply kept walking to the east, asking the way as I went along. Thus following a route through the province of Chikuzen, I thought I must have passed the vicinity of Dazaihu, but to this day I do not know exactly which was my road. Two nights and three days were spent in crossing the island. It was not at all easy to find a room for the night either, as I must have made a pretty odd figure, wandering alone, seemingly poor, and without an obvious purpose. The innkeepers were afraid of me. Highwaymen were common, the better inns turned me down, and I had to look for less reputable places. But somehow I passed those two nights and reached Kokuda on the third day. On the way, I made up a false letter of introduction to Sembaya, using Kurokaneya's own name, the whole in a very formal style. The bearer of this letter is a son of the Honorable Mr. Nakamura, a member of the fief of Nakatsu. I have often been honored by his patronage. Serve this young master in every way possible. In Kokuda I had to walk around all over town looking for an inn which would give me accommodation. None would. Finally, one lodging house took me in, but it was a pretty shabby one, and I was put in a room where there was already a man sleeping. During the night I found to my discomfort that this man was a helpless invalid, partially paralyzed and unable to take care of himself. He was probably not a guest, but a member of the proprietor's family. I still remember vividly what an uncomfortable night it was. Early the next day I took the ferry across to Shimonoseki where I sought out the Sembaya Hotel and delivered my document. It was evident that the proprietor was a good friend of Kurokaneya's, for he merely glanced at the letter and took me in with every sign of goodwill. The fare by the sailboat to Osaka was one boo and two shu, and I did not have enough to pay for the additional food on board. I proposed to settle my bill after reaching Osaka, where I was to meet my brother. This too, Sembaya gladly agreed to arrange for me. The letter proved to be a rather useful idea. In crossing the straits from Kokuro, we had something of a narrow escape. As we were about in the middle of the channel, the wind blew up and the sea became choppy. The sailors seemed much alarmed and called on me to help them. I did join in, pulling the ropes and carrying things around, and enjoyed the excitement. But when I told the hostess in Senbaya what had happened and showed her how my clothes were wet with spray, she looked much concerned and said, That was dangerous. If those men were real sailors, it would have been all right. But they are really farmers. In this idle time, some of them take to ferrying for side work. But the farmers don't know the sea. They often have sad mishaps, even in a little wind. You are lucky to have come through safely. I felt a belated scare and then understood why these sailors had looked so alarmed and called on me to help them on the sea. It was March, the season of sightseeing. In the boat for Osaka were all kinds of travelers. A foolish-looking son of a rich man, a bald-headed grandsire, some geisha gay and richly dressed, and other ladies of questionable reputation. Farmers, priests, rich and poor, all sorts crowded together in the narrow boat, drinking, gambling, clamoring over any nonsensical matter. Among them sat I, forlorn and quiet, like a priest doing penance. After a voyage of some days in the inland sea, the boat came to Miyajima, I had no business, but as long as I was here, I went along with the others to see the famous shrine. All the passengers had the usual round of good times on shore and came back drunk. I longed to drink too, but having not even a mont to spare, I walked back to the boat to eat the provided meal on board. Naturally, the captain did not feel very kindly towards me, 
and he stared angrily at me as I was eating the boat's fare. In the same way, I saw the sights of Kintai Bridge in Iwakuni without really wanting to. We next reached Tadots, near which is the shrine of Kompira. It was 3D, eight miles, to the shrine from the port, they told me. I might have gone along, but again, without any spending money, what was the use? I stayed on board while all the others went. They turned up the next morning, every one of them drunk and happy after the night's carouse. I was furious, but what could I do? After fifteen days of this highly unpleasant voyage, early one morning we anchored at Akashi. Although I had been told that the boat might sail the next day if the wind were right, and that we would reach Osaka in a day or so, I thought I had borne my company long enough. How far is Osaka from here? I asked. They told me about thirty-eight miles. All right, said I. I will walk there. Captain, will you come to the Nakatsu storage office for my bill? I will pay you there what I owe you. And will you take my baggage with you? But the captain insisted on paying the full fare on the spot, or else continuing with him on the voyage to Osaka. In my bundle, which I carried tied in a square cloth, were two changes of silk garments and some books. Look here, I said. I am leaving my best clothes and some books with you. The books may not be of much value to you, but the clothes are worth the fare I owe you. I could put in my swords too, but a gentleman cannot travel without his swords. I will be at the storage office before you arrive in port anyway. Come any time and receive your money. I know your office all right, returned the captain, but I don't know you. You will have to remain a passenger as was arranged till we reach Osaka, and I can collect your fare. It doesn't matter how long it takes, nor how much food you eat on the way. I humbly pleaded with him, but his voice grew louder and louder. Then a strange man, who seemed like a merchant from Shimonoseki, came up and said he would settle the question for us. This is not quite fair of you, Captain, he began, to put the screws on the young gentleman. He is willing to leave his clothes with you in good faith, isn't he? As a samurai, he will be true to his word, or else I will be responsible for him. All right, young sir, he said, turning to me. You may walk off on shore as you wish. At his generous interference, the captain was at last satisfied. I thanked him heartily, as if I had seen a Buddha come down into hell to rescue a victim. I then made off into the open country, free and footloose. The thirty-eight miles from Akashi to Osaka I walked in a single stretch, for my remaining money, some sixty or seventy mon in my purse, would have been barely enough to pay for food without a thought of lodging. Somewhere on the road, I have no memory of the exact place, I stopped at a food stand on the left-hand side of the way, and drank some two go of wine, and ate a dish of boiled bamboo shoots and five or six bowls of rice. Then, again, I walked on, through some towns, the highway and all. I cannot tell where. I am not sure whether I passed through Kobe or not. The great seaport was then a small fishing town. When I was approaching Osaka, I was ferried across many rivers. These are somewhat recognizable to me still, for as we travel by train today, we pass over many bridges on the western side of the city. Fortunately, a samurai was exempt from toll. An empty purse did not force me to swim across. By and by the day was over, and in the dark moonless night passers-by were few. I hardly dared inquire the way anyhow, for if a man passed in a lonely spot, I was more afraid of him than eager to find out which road to take. I did feel helpless, for though the short sword I wore was a fine one by the swordsmith Sukesada, the long one was thin and light, not of much use in an actual fight. But then, as I learned, Osaka was not especially noted for murders, and I had no great cause to be afraid. However, a lone traveler on a dark, strange road cannot well help feeling some chills run down his spine, and looking with certain security to the sharp objects tied to his side. But as I think back over it, it seems to me that I was really the one to be feared, rather than the one to be afraid. Our storage office was in the ward of Dojima, 
near a bridge called Tamae. This I had known since my childhood from hearing my mother talk about our old home. So I did not have great trouble in locating my brother's lodging. But I did have a pair of sore feet when I reached my destination at about 10 o'clock that night. Once in Osaka, I met my brother at last. I also saw many older people who remembered me from my childhood there. I had gone back to Nakatsu at the age of three, and now I was 22. But there were some old acquaintances around the storage office who, recalling the time of my birth, found in me even now resemblances to my infant features. Among them was the wife of the foreman, my old wet nurse, and an old man named Buhachi, one of the faithful old servants of our family. He had served my father before, and he was serving my brother now. The day after I arrived, I was walking with him in Dojima Street. Well, sir, I remember the night you were born. Your lady mother was taken in the night, and I went for the midwife. The old dame midwife still lives over there in that street in her little house. When you were big enough, I used to carry you around on my back, and I even took you sometimes over to the wrestling ring to watch the practice. He pointed out to me the house of the old midwife and the wrestler's practice arena. It all came back to me as we walked along. The old houses, the playground, the streets, and I could not keep back the tears that were prompted by sudden dear memories. I could not think I was on a trip. It was just as if I had come home after a long absence. At our first meeting, my brother had asked why I had come so suddenly. I told him exactly what had taken place, for there was nothing I might hide from my own brother. He then assumed his guardian right and objected to my plan. I cannot let you go on your proposed career to Edo, because it would be an act of disloyalty to our mother. Although Nakatsu is nearly on a line from Nagasaki on the way here, I see you came around the town in your journey. If I were not here, and did not know of your plan, your going on to Edo without taking leave of mother might be excusable. But as I am here, and I have met you, I cannot think of letting you go. She herself might not think much about it, but I cannot permit myself to overlook it. Therefore it seems that you should stay in Osaka. I am sure there will be just as good a teacher here as in Edo. So I had to stay with my brother in Osaka. In a little while I found out there was a good teacher of the Dutch language named Ogata. My own particular talent, as I have described it, seems to be in doing all kinds of humble work. While I was boarding in Yamamoto's house and studying Dutch there, I did all kinds of work in his household. I do not recall ever saying, I cannot do this, or I don't want to do that. When the great earthquake occurred in that district, I happened to be drawing water at the well just after finishing a lesson in Chinese with Yamamoto's son. I was carrying a pair of large water buckets swung from the ends of a pole across my shoulder. I remember that just as I made a step towards the house, the ground began to move, and I was much shaken as my foot slipped under the heavy weight. The Buddhist temple called Koeji, where I stayed when I first went to Nagasaki, was one of the largest in the town, with three minor temples connected to it. The head priest had just returned from Kyoto, the sacred city of his sect, Higashi Honganji, and he had to go and pay his formal respects to the local officials of Nagasaki. Among my odd duties, I was hired out to be his attendant. The priest was wearing the enormously long kesa or robe, and when he alighted from his palanquin at the gate of the city office, I picked up the train of his robe and followed him slowly as he walked in all his dignity. It must have been a funny sight. When the priest went on his round of New Year's calls among the parishioners, I again followed him. While he was being received indoors, I waited at the entrances, and a kindly host would often send out a tray of rice cake soup and different delicacies, which I enjoyed heartily. Once I took part in a strange prank. On the evening of the spring equinox, after an old custom of Nagasaki, the mendicant friars walked around the streets blowing conch shells and reciting some kind of prayer or incantation. This corresponds with Tokyo's bad luck expelling of the new year. 
as it is the same everywhere, people would bring out money or rice to them whenever these mendicants stood at the door to pray away the bad luck and pray in the happiness of health and prosperity. We had a neighbor next door by the name of Sugiyama Matsuburo, brother of Sugiyama Tokusaburo, who was fond of practical jokes. He came to me on the day of the equinox and said, Let's borrow a conch shell and go around tonight. I was ready for it at once. So we borrowed a shell somewhere, and hiding our faces in cowls, we started out. He would blow the conch as we passed along, and when we came to a house entrance, we would stop while I broke into a droning chant of some odd phrases from Meng Chu and other Chinese books I had memorized in school. Our prayer worked. We found our offerings came freely, and once back home again, we took the contents of our bowl and bought rice cake and duck and feasted at ease. In Nagasaki, my first teacher of the Dutch language was a certain Matsuzaki Teho. He was one of the students sent there by his master, the Lord of Satsuma, who was a foremost advocate of Dutch culture, and especially the study of Dutch medicine. First, Matsuzaki gave me the letters of the alphabet with the pronunciation of each in Japanese ideograph. It was bewildering. I could hardly believe these ABCs to be signs of a language. But after a while, I began to be familiar with them and found myself able to understand something of the language. I realized then that my teacher was not overly brilliant in his strange subject. I thought, he hasn't much of a brain. Suppose it were Chinese instead of Dutch. I am sure I am much better in it. If I should learn as much of Dutch as I have learned of Chinese, I should not have to bow to this fellow. Someday I will turn on him and teach him Dutch. Such was the dream of a young beginner. When I entered the student household of Ogata in Osaka, I had already had a year's start in the Dutch language, so in two or three years I had passed the 80 or 90 schoolmates and become one of the senior students. The chances of life are very strange. The same Matsuzaki who had taught me in Nagasaki came about this time and entered the Ogata school. I was conducting one of the lower classes then, and Matsuzaki was ordered to join it. So the teacher and the student had exchanged places in these few years, and my mad dream had come true. Of course, I could not tell this to anyone, but I could hardly suppress my sudden delight. I took it out in drinking by myself a large bottle of wine in honor of my secret exaltation. The soldier's passion for fame, the politician's coveting of high office, and the rich man's accumulation of wealth. These may seem, philosophically speaking, worldly and foolish vanities. But these vanities are not to be made light of, for the very scholar who ridicules them may have the same vain ambition himself. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and that you'll join us for the next one, where I'll be continuing the autobiography of Fukuzawa Yukichi. If you'd like to leave feedback or make a suggestion about what I should read next, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at at MakePeterRead, or you can drop me an email at MakePeterRead at gmail.com. I always strive to ensure that I have the appropriate rights to the works I feature. If you believe I've made a mistake or you hold the rights to a work I've read on this podcast, please reach out to me and I'll be happy to correct the issue. I'm Peter Watanabe, and thank you for making me read.